Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, if you have a seat, be seated. The speech President Biden gave this past weekend in Warsaw, Poland. If you watch the whole thing, it has the cadence and the language of a grim kind of pep rally. Hundreds of thousands of refugees have flooded into Poland since Russia invaded Ukraine a month back. Warsaw's mayor has warned of being at a breaking point. And Biden seemed to be saying, all of this is not going to end anytime soon. This battle will not be won in days or months either. We need to steel ourselves for the long fight ahead. As much as this speech was about what's happening right now, though, it was also a history lesson. We stand with you. Period. At one point, Biden ticked off one battle and then another, framing war in Ukraine as part of a much longer struggle against Russian aggression, one that stretched back to the 1950s and 60s. Until finally, in 1989, the Berlin Wall and all the walls of Soviet domination, they fell. They fell. And the people prevailed. His message here was that Western leaders are not just trying to tamp down the conflict in Kyiv. They're trying to stamp out sparks of authoritarianism before they spread and become full-blown wildfires. We cannot go back to that. We cannot. I think he was realistic to convey that sense. I think we've really crossed a you know Rubicon in international relations, and I believe that things will be different for a long time. Mary Elise Serrati has studied conflicts on Russia's borderlands. She says when you do that, it's a little easier to know what to pay attention to in this current conflict. Take Biden's speech, for instance. Many people focused on what the president said at the very end when he improvised a rebuke to Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. God bless you all. And may God defend our freedom. And may God protect our troops. Some observers heard this and wondered, is Biden calling for regime change here? Mary says this was Biden's attempt at being realistic. 
the West is no longer in a peacetime posture. Anything that makes it less likely for Putin to back down is obviously problematic, and Biden's comment does fall in that category. My lack of concern over it, however, comes up from the fact that that's a relatively minor issue compared to everything else that is going on, compared to the extent of the bloodshed, the context of the brutality in Ukraine. Given that we are where we are, it is clear that NATO and Russia are enemies once again. And the fact that NATO and Russia are enemies once again? It's changing everything. Just a few months ago, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was considered a black eye for NATO. And even earlier than that, Western leaders were warning that NATO was becoming brain dead. I don't really remember the last time NATO was a rallying cry. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, the Russian aggression against Ukraine is horrific. But if there's any silver lining to the dark cloud of that aggression, it's the cohesion in the West that has resulted. There's actually a political science theory that posits it's useful to have an enemy because it concentrates minds and causes fractious allies to cooperate. Today on the show, how NATO got its groove back and whether this cohesion can last. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The irony of NATO is that it was born out of the failure of a different alliance between the West and the Soviet Union. In World War II, Soviets fought alongside the Allied powers to defeat the Nazis. And when Germany surrendered unconditionally, all of the Allies occupied the country, dividing it into Western zones run by the U.S., Britain, and France, and an Eastern zone run by the USSR. The city of Berlin was divvied up the same way. But cooperation between the West and the Soviets was short-lived. The Western allies wanted to put in place democratic structures. The USSR, not so much. The Western allies were concerned about revving up a market economy. The USSR was not. So gradually it becomes apparent that not only are the allies now failing to cooperate, that there's actually new hostility arising between what is increasingly becoming the Soviet zone and the Western zone, because the Western actors merge their zones and start to act together. And uh, things just keep going from bad to worse. For example, Stalin blockades all of Berlin, so the West has to airlift supplies in in the Berlin airlift. Meanwhile, the Western European countries like Britain and France are getting very nervous about what this means for their own security, right, if Moscow is now going to be hostile. 
And they're looking to Washington and saying, hey, we need some kind of you know, security guarantees here. You also have the famous diplomat George Kennan, the American diplomat in Moscow, sends what is known as the long telegram saying, you know, I, there, there can be no modus vivendi. There can be no live and let live with Moscow. And so you have this, this profound sea change in American thinking, kind of like the sea change we're seeing now in um, European thinking, that in fact, we don't have an old ally, we have a new enemy. And out of that sea change, comes the spirit of, okay, now we need, despite the fact that World War II is over, despite the fact that we actually took our troops home, we Americans are actually going to have to go back to Europe and set up this new alliance together with our Europeans to defend Western Europe from the Soviet Union. And the idea is we're stronger together, right? You're going to be stronger together and you're going to give each other Article 5. That's a guarantee that an attack on one member state will be treated as an attack on all. And that will deter the Soviet Union from entering Western Europe. Now, I should add that NATO initially is kind of a paper tiger. Nobody's quite sure what that really means, Article 5. But then there's three events that, as people like to say, that put the O in NATO, that turn into Hmm. a real organization. What are those events? The first event is that the Soviet Union successfully detonates its own atomic bomb in the late summer of 1949. Americans thought they'd have their nuclear monopoly for longer. Then you have the success of the communist revolution in China in October 1949. And then in 1950, North Korea launches an invasion of South Korea. So suddenly it seems to the West, this is not entirely historically accurate, but suddenly it seems to the West that the communist world is expanding in size, is armed with nuclear weapons, and is willing to cross disputed borders and invade neighboring countries, i.e. South Korea. And so everyone looks at that and thinks, oh, my goodness, the next thing is going to be an invasion of West Germany. After the Berlin Wall fell, NATO went through this rapid evolution that you chronicle. Can you explain what happened? Yes. So NATO starts out at 12 countries in 1949, but by the end of the Cold War, it's already enlarged to 16. But obviously, once the Berlin Wall comes down and once the Soviet Union collapses, obviously you're in a new geopolitical situation. And so the big question was, you know, what happens now to European security? Uh, Do we give up NATO entirely, since NATO was designed to protect Western Europe from the Soviet Union, basically? Can we just say mission accomplished and disband? Like, what happens now? Was that ever on the table? Just like, oh, we could just get rid of it. It was never on the table for the Americans or for the West Germans who were driving the process, but there were dissidents from Eastern European countries who proposed that. Now, this is an interesting and little-known fact. For example, Václav Havel, the leader of Czechoslovakia, proposed dissolving all military blocs, NATO and the Soviet Union. Many of these brave dissidents in the peaceful revolution of 1989 in Poland and Czechoslovakia and East Germany, the people who had bravely overthrown Soviet control, many of them were committed pacifists who wanted no military blocs. And there was actually a, a serious proposal launched by basically people who had gone from prisons to presidencies uh, when they overthrew Soviet control to turn all of Central and Eastern Europe into a perpetual neutral zone of peace, to dissolve the borders between places like Poland, East Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, demilitarize and denuclearize it and make it a bridge of peace between East and West forever. That's so radical. Isn't that radical? Exactly. You can say that's crazy, but that would have been a new world order. It's interesting you bring up Havel, though. 
Because didn't he change his mind? So that's why this is forgotten, because when it becomes apparent that George H.W. Bush feels strongly that the West needs not only to retain NATO, but also to retain its ability to enlarge, there's going to be a NATO line. So the smart move, given that that's the case, given that our alternate vision is not going to work, given that another alternate vision for a pan-European security organization is not going to work either, then we want to be on the right side of the line this time. Hmm. So then the, the name of the game is to get into NATO. And so Havel changes his mind, and he and the leaders of Poland and of many states then begin actively pressing for membership in NATO. Mary says there's a type of cycle that starts to play out after the Berlin Wall falls. Eastern Bloc countries want to join NATO for protection. The Russian government bristles. And then the U.S. offers financial inducements. And Russia resentfully capitulates. All this started pretty much right away with the unification of Germany. So in order for Germany to unify, Moscow had to be convinced to give up both its troops and its legal rights in divided Germany. And so as part of a speculative early conversation about what it might take to get Moscow to agree to that, Secretary of State James Baker, the American Secretary of State, had said speculatively, how about this, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the last leader of the Soviet Union, how about this, how about you let your half of Germany go and we say that NATO will move not one inch eastward? This offer has become part of Kremlin lore. Vladimir Putin describes what happens next as a betrayal. Because while the American Secretary of State, James Baker, saw this deal as an excellent compromise, his boss, then-President George H.W. Bush, disagreed. Because if NATO moves not one inch eastward, that means, among other things, it'll stay frozen in the middle of divided Germany. Because the NATO front line was the front border of West Germany, the eastern border of West Germany, which is in the middle of what's going to be United Germany. And so Baker has to hurriedly send around a letter to various, you know, colleagues and saying, sorry, sorry, I said that, causing confusion, not going to say that anymore. The problem is that it takes Moscow a while to notice. And Gorbachev later tries to get that in writing, but can't. And finally, in the end, he gets really frustrated, but he agrees instead to give up his hold on East Germany for financial inducements. And this is the important punchline, which Putin ignores. There is a formal legally binding treaty to this effect. And that treaty explicitly allows NATO to extend Article 5 eastward beyond the Cold War line, and Gorbachev authorizes signature of that document. But to Vladimir Putin, he tells this story as if we were offered that NATO would not move one inch and you took it back from us, even though Gorbachev signed on to this. So even though in February 1990, there's a speculative discussion that NATO will move not one inch eastward, by the time push comes to shove and you're actually inking a treaty in September 1990, not only has that language disappeared, but the opposite language goes into the treaty explicitly allowing Article 5 to extend eastward across the Cold War line. And to repeat, Moscow authorizes signature of this treaty and then ratifies it. But Putin doesn't want to talk about that. Once the Nazi threat was gone, you know, you don't have that Nazi threat forcing the West and Moscow to work together. And then it becomes apparent that Moscow has a very different idea of what security order it wants in Europe. It wants a buffer zone. And there I think we do have a parallel to today. Because 
I think a lot of what is going on is Vladimir Putin is saying, I do not like the post-Cold War security order. I want more of a buffer. I want control over lands where Slavs live. Back after a break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Three years after the Berlin Wall fell, President George H.W. Bush was out of office and President Bill Clinton was in. And Mary Elise Cerati says Clinton and his European allies faced this choice. What do we do about NATO? Eastern Bloc countries were clamoring for Article 5 protection. But everyone knew that expanding the alliance would make Russia defensive. Workarounds were considered. The British, for example, at one point said, you know, what we should do is we should expand NATO once in the post-Cold War world. Just once. Because any more is going to just increase friction with Russia to the point where it's going to have unpredictable consequences. Again, this was another really prescient remark that I was amazed to see from the early 90s. And so the Brits said... The British said, let's just pick a, a large set of countries that we think would make good allies, let them in and be done with it. No further rounds of enlargement. And Washington pushed back very, very hard against London. In particular, Clinton's Russia advisor, Strobe Talbot, said that is exactly the wrong thing to do. That is the exact opposite of what we should do. We need to make clear that NATO has an open door, that it will it will not stop expanding. But this open door policy had a downside, and everyone knew it. Ukraine. Basically, as early as coming into office, Clinton is saying things like, again, I'm paraphrasing, but the exact quotations in my book, Ukraine is the linchpin of peace in Europe. If we basically just give Article 5 to a few countries, we're going to draw a new line across Europe, and Ukraine is going to be on the wrong side of that line. And that's not right, right? Ukraine is a big country. At that point, it had over 50 million people, so it's on the size of England or France. It's geographically enormous. It's becoming a democracy. It's becoming a market economy. Why should we draw a new line and leave Ukraine in the lurch? So another workaround was offered up, something called the Partnership for Peace, this was a way for NATO to work together with Russia while keeping it at a safe distance. Other non-NATO countries were encouraged to join along with Russia. It provided structure for Ukraine and Moscow and the West to all work together without moving the Article 5 line. Some thought of it like a NATO halfway house. It's actually referred to as the NATO waiting room. And Russia agreed with this. It didn't love it. Nobody loved it. But at least everyone could be in it. And so it provided, among other things, options for managing contingency, which, by the way, would be really useful right now. So what happened with the Partnership for Peace? Because I don't hear about it these days. 
what happens is the third big decision about NATO enlargement. Because of some tragic Russian choices and also American domestic politics, Clinton essentially changes his mind. Boris Yeltsin, who is on the one hand trying to democratize Russia, but on the other hand struggling with alcoholism, facing a huge number of domestic enemies, uh, some of whom are you know, fascists, some of whom are really extreme, Yeltsin makes a fateful decision in October 1993 to start shedding the blood of his political opponents. In other words, to not keep things on a peaceful level. A live picture of the battle for control of the Russian parliament. The words now of President Boris Yeltsin on this Russian television. Alarming. This tragic night has taught us many things. We had not been getting ready to make war. We had been hoping that it was possible to make a deal and preserve peace in this capital. And so he fires, he has army tanks fire on his own uh, parliament. And then even worse, in 1994, he decides to invade Chechnya, which he does brutally. And so those decisions are game changers, because suddenly places like Poland and Hungary say, you know, we said we'd put up with a partnership for peace, but now that Moscow is shedding blood again, that's not enough. A partnership is not enough. So all of this changes Clinton's calculus. And having said, I don't want to draw a new Article 5 line across Europe, he decides in the end to do that anyway. It's kind of funny to me to look back at how people were talking about NATO just a few years ago. Like my favorite quote was from French President Emmanuel Macron, who called NATO brain dead in 2019. Right. <laughs> right. People had varying opinions on it, but it didn't seem like very many people were in a great headspace about it. Right. So this overlaps what we discussed a bit before, which is a questioning of NATO's mission prior to this 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's a long history of France questioning NATO. In fact, when it became clear, for example, that the French wanted American service personnel to leave, uh, one of the responses I got from Washington is, does that include the ones in cemeteries, too, who you know died in World War II to liberate you, right? You know, that's a pretty cutting comment. But NATO survived, and uh, NATO survived Macron's brain-dead comment, and now it is uh, cohesive and united. And as I said, if there's any silver lining to the truly horrific events that are happening in Ukraine, and again, I have to express my admiration for the people in Ukraine who are bravely resisting that, it's the cohesion that their bravery has inspired inside NATO. Was enlarging NATO beneficial for Western allies? Or did it push Russia closer to the war that's happening in Ukraine right now? Or is it maybe both things at the same time? There's no way to answer that question without first saying good for whom. A lot of the debate about NATO enlargement has been binary, right? Either it was good, it was bad, and you believe one or the other, and people yell at each other. And I'm trying to say, wait a minute, that's not nuanced enough. There were a spectrum of possibilities for enlarging NATO. So my argument is that NATO enlargement made sense. Uh, it was the people who wanted it were brave new democracies like the Baltics, like uh, Poland. They had every right to want to be in NATO. NATO had every right to take them on. The problem with NATO enlargement was how it happened. And I think if we'd stuck with this uh, partnership for peace, which gave us useful ambiguity, which gave us the ability to manage contingency, that would have created less frictions and importantly, would have given a birth to Ukraine. This week, there's been 
a little bit of an indication that maybe Russia's changing strategy in Ukraine is doing that by floating the idea that maybe our mission is accomplished and we want to focus on Donetsk and Luhansk, these two regions where Russia had already been engaged in warfare since 2014. I wonder what you make of this shift in tone. Hard to know what is real and what is not with regard to Russia. Russia, of course, as we all know, was saying for months it was not going to invade Ukraine, and then it invaded Ukraine. But that is a positive development in a truly awful situation because there may be an endgame coming into sight. Again, I'm speculating here. I, I, I'm a historian. I don't have access to classified information, so I'm just speculating here. But it seems that you could start to see an end game where Russia says, oh, what we really wanted all along was to secure an eastern area that included a land bridge to Crimea. And Ukrainians, although it is horrific what they've suffered, Ukraine decides it can better live with that than with continuing to watch maternity hospitals get bombed. But just because the conflict in Ukraine could have a foreseeable end doesn't mean this geopolitical tangle is going to go away. Mary Elise Sarati sees this moment, this war, as having irrevocably shifted the world order for years to come. If Russia ceased military activity today, it's not as if in the West we'd say, okay, that's fine, let's go back to the way we were before. That's just not going to happen. The shift in attitude towards Russia is too profound. This new division between Russia and the West is going to last, and I think will increasingly have many characteristics of the previous Cold War. Now, I should caveat that and say, for example, Putin does not want to recreate communism. He also does not want to recreate the entire Soviet Union. He has this more this idea of sort of Russia as the head of a kind of what he refers to as Ruski Mir, a sort of Russian or Slavic world. And that, I think, is going to endure beyond him. It's going to take a long time to move beyond this new division that's now happened between a Moscow-centric bloc and a Washington-centric bloc. And of course, this is in a more complicated context than the Cold War, because of course we have China's power, we have Iran, we have North Korea. So I think we are genuinely in a, in a new and lasting phase of geopolitics. You've said that this new Cold War will be far worse than the first. I'm wondering why you said that. I fear that it could be worse. And the reason I fear that it could be worse is that we are missing many of the guardrails that we had during the previous Cold War. So during the previous Cold War, which evolved over years and decades, we developed, for example, a whole set of arms control agreements. What's scary about now is we seem to have spun back up to Cold War-like conditions in a matter of weeks, and we don't have those guardrails. We also don't have a popular awareness of the risks of uh, a Cold War confrontation. And so that, I fear, could be more dangerous than before, yes. To bring it back to NATO, if you had to guess in a decade, do you think NATO will still be at 30 countries? Or do you think it'll be more? I think it probably still will be at 30 because we have such a strong, bright line now across Europe. I think the moment for NATO enlargement has passed, and I think it's unlikely that NATO would expand, certainly to any large or significant countries. I would, however, carve out potentially Finland and Sweden, which are sort of in a separate category because there's been a long discussion about, you know, could they ever be members, particularly now that we have the Baltics in, and they, you know, would provide strategic depth for the the Baltics. They would turn that you know area into a natal lake. That may happen. 
Um, that would, I think, be the one area where I really could see new members being added. But I don't think, for example, Georgia and Ukraine are going to become members, no. Mary Elise, I'm really grateful for your scholarship here. Thanks for telling me more. Sure. Thank you for your attention to these important issues. Mary Elise Zarati is the author of Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. Go check it out. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are getting a ton of help these days from Laura Spencer and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. I'm handing the reins over to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew, and I will be back in this feed Monday morning. <laughs> 